Welcome to the Leaders Table podcast, where policy leaders share the inside stories of their impact on the world, and we capture the secrets behind their success to help you increase yours. Education, diversity, and equity, core American issues. What are the things that I should be pushing for to inspire a movement? Let's, let's dig into that. Producer Molly Stevens, and here on the Leaders Table podcast, it's our job to dissect leaders in policy and education to dig into the practices, tools, tips, and actionable strategies of their success to empower you. It's no coincidence that Irene Holtzman's days are spent advocating for agility in school decision making, while her favorite evenings are spent dancing. But as you'll hear, being quick on her feet takes a lot of planning. So put in your earbuds and join us as a fly on the wall for Irene's reflections on the path from sixth grade teacher to now executive director of Focus DC. From the tough lessons from her first year leading a team to the importance of mentorship from a leader who she describes as the baddest of the bad, this interview will leave you buzzing with advice. This episode wraps it up for season one of the Leaders Table podcast, but we'll be around this summer with some special edition episodes, so keep an eye out for updates on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. As always, we'd love your ideas and your suggestions for season two, so email us anytime at leaderstable at educationalequity.org. And now here's Irene Holtzman at the Leaders Table. Irene Holtzman, that welcome to the Leaders Table. Thank you so much for having me. So you are Executive Director of Friends of Choice in Urban Schools, or FOCUS. Uh, you're a D.C.-focused nonprofit that supports uh, public charter schools in D.C. By, by advocating and supporting autonomy, equity, and quality at those schools. We also know that before joining FOCUS, you were Policy Director and a Senior Advisor at KIPP D.C., and you also were a sixth-grade teacher at Gage Eckington in D.C.P.S., so strong D.C. D.C. background. Thanks for years. I've been in the DC education scene since 2000, so it's been oh, a while. You've certainly seen a lot. So tell us, give us a sense of what uh, what focus is focused on and why for for DC uh, schools. Absolutely. So focus is actually um, a really seasoned organization. We've been around since 1996, the advent of the DC Charter Law. Our founder Mike Peabody was one of the people who was instrumental in getting DC's Charter Law written. Um, obviously, 20 years later, we're in a much different position than in the early in the early years. But the um, theory of action for focus stays the same: that when given the proper amount of autonomy and the appropriate amount of resources, that um, autonomous schools are really transformational for children, and that um, that your zip code shouldn't determine your educational destiny. Um, and the parents deserve a choice 
in terms of where they send their children. They sh every student, every family in the city should have high-quality educational options. Um, and unsurprisingly, although sometimes depressingly, our fight now is in some ways very similar to how it was in 1996, though things have gotten better. Um, we are constantly defending against encroachment into charter autonomy. Um, as the sector has gotten bigger, there is a... Um, you know, there's a desire by folks to legislate it in ways that are not consistent with our state charter law. Um, also, just in ensuring that um, both sectors are adequately resourced and so that um, the traditional public schools aren't giving more funds, you know, more funds, that we have access to the same pot of funds, the same city services, and are treated fairly by the D.C. government. And then on the flip side, right, looking at the supply side, ensuring that um, new schools that want to start have the supports they need to start as tier one from day one, you know, and that they're high performing. And we do have a strong quality proposition. We think um, the autonomy that we're granted is really in exchange for increased accountability. And so um, while we, while we don't, um, there are some charter support organizations that publicly advocate for the closing of schools. We do believe that like the promise of the charter sector is that, uh, good schools are allowed to replicate, grow, and continue deepening their impact, and that when schools aren't doing the most fundamental job of educating students, that those students are sort of, um, the school is closed and that the students go elsewhere. Now, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about why autonomy is so essential to the goals of equity and, and quality. I know you just talked about a heightened sense of accountability, but but what else is, is it about that autonomy that allows um, allows charter schools to to get it more right than than others. Sure. So um, when I taught in DCPS, and you know, I was a 2000 Teach for America Corps member, but I did stay in my placement school for five years. Um, it's interesting looking back because at that age, I was, um, you know, I I don't didn't have the most uh, positive relationship with my principal, and I think um, at the time I attributed it to my principal, and later in life I attributed it to my own personal characteristics at the time. But when I think about the constraints that she was under as part of an, like a huge government bureaucracy, um, there were lots of things that she, and I remember this clearly, that she wanted to do that she wasn't permitted to because those decisions were made in a place that was far away from our community and far away from our school. And so while our school was consistently labeled a failing school during the five years that I was there, I don't think that she had the tools that she needed to make the changes that would have resulted in increased student achievement. Um, it's actually one of the reasons that I left DCPS to teach. Um, when I started at KIPP, because I was there for 10 years, I started out as a classroom teacher. And one of the things that I really appreciated was um, the agility of the school leadership to respond to student and community needs. And so for the first time in my life, um, I came in as a fifth grade science teacher, and uh, the previous science teacher had built the entire curriculum, but what we didn't have was lab equipment. And I said, look, you know, my kids need to be able to use a microscope. And, and my principal sort of took me at my word and was able to order them. And it wasn't some complicated budget process. Like she had budget autonomy and could, um, and once my case was made to make that decision. The same way that when parents had concerns about neighborhood safety, she wasn't dealing with 47 different um, people in a, an upline of, of communication in our LEA, but she was actually reaching out directly to MPD and working directly with the local MPD captain to um, work on a safe route to school process. And so what I really saw on the ground was um, the lack of bureaucracy. Bureaucracy was something that empowered leaders to make important decisions for children. And so when we look at, um, you know, one of the things, is, the irony is that I worked in policy at the end of my time at KIPP, um, and as a larger organization at that time, because KIPP grew from 400 students in two schools to 16 schools and over 5,000 students while I was there, you know, there's a, there's a really interesting tightrope you walk between 
um, sort of really close local, like on the ground leadership versus sort of standardization of things across schools. Um, and I think, you know, legislators, policymakers, they see a challenge and they want to solve it through legislation and policy. But what that doesn't do is account for the vast diversity of schools and the different ways that things play out in different types of schools. And so um, our goal really is to keep the decision-making uh, the decision making autonomy as close to the school leadership and their community as possible. Um, and, and we think that is the thing that makes charters able to do what, they're do, do what they do. It's not a particular curriculum. It's not a particular model. It's really the ability to make quick, agile decisions to support students and their families. You know, we've had Nina Reese and and others from the charter school movement on this podcast, and and mm-hmm. much much of the conversation um, uh, errs around the idea of innovation in schools and how charter schools can help to drive that innovation in, even in non charters. Is that something that you all think about the the teaching um, the teaching ability or the the teaching functionality of of charter schools um, in in DC or in any city? Absolutely. And so I think that, um, number one, you know, if we look back at the late 90s, early 2000s, just having a school that was educating students well was something that was innovative, unfortunately, right? We were in a really difficult place in public education, and we just had a vast majority of schools were failing their kids. Um, but what we see now in, in D.C. in particular, we have, um, we have Montessori schools, we have um, expeditionary learning schools, we have bilingual schools, we have a school that's set up to serve um, students who are uh, living in foster care. Um, we have adult education schools, schools that specialize in disconnected youth. Um, I think on a micro level, the schools are really good at um, working together and sometimes working cross-sector to share those ideas. What we're particularly excited about is Focus is hosting D.C.'s first annual D.C. Charter Conference. And um, on a very exciting note, the traditional public school system is sending a num- number of their folks there to learn from um, to learn from the same charter leaders that are presenting about their best practices. Um, I also think that over the past, I don't know, five to seven years, the bridges between the school, the school sectors have, have really been strengthened. Um, and there's a lot of, there are a lot of informal ways that schools get together. But the truth is, is that, um, you know, people ask all the time, like, what I think would be great. And I always say, I want the chancellor to have the same autonomy that any charter school leader does or, and grant that down to their principals. And we do see some of that happening. Um, and so I do think DC is an excellent example of, of um, innovative models and that people learn from them, even if the learning structures are not particularly formal. Mm-hmm. What are the challenges to today's um, school innovators in working through the, the politics, whether, uh, whether it's DC or, or other places? I actually think there's a, a really interesting uh, really interesting challenge on the table for folks who have really innovative models which is that um, when you want to work with a particular population or you want to do something that's totally different, um, the one-size-fits-all box of the public charter school board's performance management framework, which is how um, our authorizer judges schools, or even the new accountability frameworks being judged, uh, being proposed under ESSA, um, they're all very heavily weighted towards student achievement, which we completely believe is, you know, is important because uh, student outcomes are really what makes school, schools great. Um, but it also can have a chilling effect on school leaders who want to work with non-traditional populations or do things that are super, super innovative. Um, and so the balancing, like how innovative can we get and still demonstrate that we're high quality, I think that's a really difficult proposition and, um, and that there's a wariness 
both on the school side and the operator side, um, because every school is constantly proving its worth that when we try things and they don't work, um, I think folks really feel concerned that it's going to undermine like our whole, our whole sector. Um, when the truth is that uh, the truth about innovation is that while many innovations are successful, some, some also are not as successful. And I think we have to allow some amount of room for, um, so try, try again with schools, certainly not in a way that um, is detrimental to students, but in a way that we're able to sort of try to figure out what the best thing is for each individual kid. Obviously, um, D.C.'s charter school sector has um, has led a renaissance in many ways in um in student outcomes and achievement. Do you see the same though for, for kind of subpopulations, including African-Americans, Latinos, or uh, newer immigrant populations, uh, either from, from Asia and or from Latin America? That's an excellent question. Um, I think that the vast majority of public charter schools in DC um, for a number of reasons have relatively homogenous populations. They're serving mostly African-American youth. Um, there are a number of schools that are highly diverse or serve, serve predominantly immigrant populations. And some of that is related to how people resource themselves when they come to the city, the individual value propositions of schools. Um, I know, so my husband is uh, an immigrant from El Salvador. He's also a kindergarten teacher at KPC Promise Academy. And um, over in Ward 7, we've been watching um, the demographics of Ward 7 change. And so 10 years ago when I started at KIPP and we opened that campus, um, there was nary a Latino or Asian student in sight. Uh, and now 10 years later, there, um, we see that population changing and we're watching the schools, um, the schools adjust to best, to best serve those students. But I do think, um, particularly with what I've seen with schools with high immigrant populations, Ward of Mouse plays a huge role in the choices that parents make. And so generating the buzz or, the, or convincing parents of your commitment to a particular population takes time. Um, I hear all the time about schools who have an intention to serve a particular population, and because D.C. has a common lottery, um, when the names are pulled out of the proverbial hat, um, they don't end up with who they expected. And so schools in D.C. really have to be um, agile and flexible and prepared to serve whoever, um, whoever selected for their enrollment. Um, but I do, see, I do see sort of this increased interest in, in adapting and serving those populations in particular and looking at ways that getting them more inspired to imply, apply to the school so that they can serve them. Mm-hmm. And do you think, I, how do you think that the charter sector in general, not just the, the schools you work with in DC, but the charters in general are uh, addressing this question of, of equity? Is it front and center? Is it more about systems, systems evolution and driving uh, change into the edu- education system writ large? I just think we see, you know, when I look at the, the nation as a whole, um, there, are a couple of, uh, there are a couple of things that really influence that. Number one um, is state charter school law and how the, how the schools are chartered, where they're chartered. Um, some states have neighborhood preferences that sort of influence, like create, create the population of the school out of who's located very close to them. When we look at a city like New York that also has a low-income preference and some other preferences that are less traditional, um, it helps ensure that um, it helps ensure that schools that are intended to serve particular populations are able to. I also think we see really um, when we look at some of the larger charter management organizations and the things that they are trying to do to address equity issues within their CMOs. Um, so I know again I talk about KIPP a lot because I used to work there. 
but TIP nationally has invested in restorative justice. They have a, um, the KIPP Bay Area schools have sort of doubled down there um, in decreasing out-of-school suspensions, increasing in-school time, and really changing, like, what the feel of their campuses is. Um, I, we see that with some other CMOs. We see um, different kinds of teacher leadership with CMOs like Green Dot, and they have a very, and you know, the union associated with Green Dot has had a very strong equity proposition um, and has been really direct about influencing the school-to-prison pipeline where they are in California. Um, I would say in the places where we see uh, what I would consider less than ideal behavior is because the, the accountability structures are not set up in a way to support equity. Um, we're really fortunate in D.C. to have a strong independent authorizer um, that believes in, believes in equity. Um, and in some other places, charter schools, when they're, um, when they're chartered by their district, Sometimes the, dis the district does not have a strong equity proposition or doesn't have strong authorizing practices, which negatively impacts that. Um, and sometimes the laws are set up in a way that it doesn't even support like equity on the school, like on the school-based level. Um, and so I think people like the National Alliance, when they rate the strength of state charter school laws, are a huge influencer in making legislators more aware of what levers they can pull to increase equity in their own home districts. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time delving into your, your some of your leadership lessons, some of the things that you've you've grown to know in multiple leadership um, capacities. You you now are executive director of Focus, a nonprofit focus focused on Washington D.C. It's charter sector and building um, capacity and, and and policy work. But you've also led inside of a of a larger network organization at KIPP, and of course you led classrooms of sixth graders. So uh, what is it that you've learned about leadership in all of those, uh, across each of your experiences, and what has been the most teaching? Um, I think, starting with my classroom experience, I think the big leadership lesson I took away from that was um, just n knowing yourself. Um, very early in my teaching career, I spent a lot of time trying to create a teacher persona and um, that person was not somebody that really resonated with my students, and I was much more successful when I was able to express my authentic self in my teaching. Um, that kids like real recognizes real and fake, like and real recognizes fake. And I think the the fakeness at the very beginning, when I was, I don't know, I had a schema of what a teacher did and what they were like, and that was not the person that I was. Um, and so, after seven years in the classroom, I feel like I was really able to learn a lot more about authentic leadership and sort of being who you are, but also being an effective leader. Um, when I moved from the classroom at KIPP into managing adults, um, I tell the story all the time because I think it's one of the most important but also most painful lessons I learned. Um, I went from being a peer to a team of three to being their boss. And um, at the end of, and I, I got my team bigger, and at the end of year one, like my entire team quit. And I realized that there were things that, you know, habits we get into as adults dealing with children that do not work so well for adult to adult leadership. Um, and it was, it was really, it was really tough. Um, and so just learning to, you know, I'm a really, I don't know if you know about like social styles and leadership, but I am a hundred percent a driver. I'm super results oriented. Um, I also care about people deeply, but sometimes would forget that in service to the results. And so, um, reminding myself, right, always bringing it back to the people and inspiring people to do great work for you is much more important than trying to control the outcome. Because um, really, the higher up in leadership you get, the less direct influence you have over your outcomes. You have influence over people, inspiring people to work hard and do good work. You have a coaching and mentoring role. But you're also, you know, it's not like, did you fill out Form X? Did you do thing Y? Because people feel stifled. Um, and then I think moving into executive leadership, you know, my previous boss, 
before I left, Kip sat down with me and talked a little bit about the role of executive director and the things she thought that I would like and the things she thought that I, um, that may be areas of growth for me. And I think in this particular role, um, what I've learned so much is that at the, at this level, um, when I'm in charge of a staff and, and reporting to a board, that uh, it's really important to sort of access your lifelines. Um, I, the phrase that's lonely at the top just seemed like a whiny cliche to me. And it, it never became more apparent when I realized like I had lost my cadre of work friends who I was talking about my experiences with at KIPP when I came into this role. And so utilizing the services of a coach, um, I work with a network of other women executive directors that we meet monthly for breakfast and talk about our challenges and problem solve together. Uh, but those lifelines have been so incredibly important for me because I don't have that outlet like in my day to day. And so if I wasn't intentionally seeking those out, I think I would be a much less functional and happy person. Mm-hmm. What, um, what does your network of, of women leaders talk about the most? What, what are the kind of the, what's the, the, the most common theme? Um, I, I mean, I think since we're all EDs, it's really not the, just the, it's really tactical nonprofit leadership. So I actually had breakfast with them this morning, right before this podcast. Um, and we talked a bit about board recruitment and what it's like to revitalize and re-energize a board. Um, did some brainstorming around people we knew who might be good for each other's boards and sort of fit the profiles we were looking for. Uh, we talked about the experience of executive director evaluations and how to set ourselves up for success. Uh, we talked about fundraising. Um, and then we spent a fair amount of time actually this morning talking about um, national politics and what the effect on the nonprofit funding on the local level is going to be, particularly, um, you know, we all work in social justice roles and our, this is in, in our roles, and, and we're really proud of our mayor um, for standing up to federal government and, you know, doubling down on D.C. as a sanctuary city, um, but thinking about what happens when federal funding for the district dries up and how that's going to impact nonprofit budgets and how do we contingency plan and, and, and also just a little bit of venting, right, the things we can't say to our staff. Mm-hmm. Um, that are really frustrating and, and just that safe space to talk about that block theme before we walk back into our um, more professional and polished roles as EDs in our own offices. Mm-hmm. What do the women that you that you meet with, and also just based on your personal experiences, what are the what are the special challenges to women who want to be executive directors, both getting into the role? being successful and, and growing? So I think getting into the role, um, even this was not a role that I intended to apply for. I was approached by my predecessor. Um, and even with his direct approach and the encouragement of his board, I think that, um, my own assessment of my skills and abilities was, uh, it, it, there's a fine line between like humility and sort of underselling yourself. And, and I don't say, and I think that I, like even being asked to apply for the position was a surprise. And so I think lesson number one for women in leadership in general is like, even if you're not necessarily interested in like switching jobs right away, like constantly um, taking stock of your skills and making sure that you have a leadership story and that you're, you're recognizing and advocating for your own value is incredibly important. Um, the same thing, like one of the things I am, uh, I'm a strong person and an independent person and I'm the last person to attribute any of my, um, like any, like any conflicts or things that I have, I'm very, it's very unusual for me to attribute that to sexism, but looking at my interactions, like there are some things that are incredibly, that are some interactions that are incredibly influenced by gender and sort of 
recognizing that. And it becomes more and more apparent as you move up the leadership ladder and, um, and as you're strengthening your voice. And so um, for women, for other women in leadership, I find ourselves sort of, we all have an unspoken commitment to amplifying our own individual voices in the face of like the patriarchy, um, for lack of a better word. And, and while that's not constantly a problem, you know, when it is a problem, it's something that you have to acknowledge and say, hey, this is actually not about the, the value of your ideas or the strength of your leadership. This is about somebody having preconceived notions about what our place in the world is. Um, and then I also think at the, at the last piece, and this was part of the conversation this morning when we were talking about executive director evaluation, um, you know, there's plenty of research around women's um, ability to advocate for and negotiate things like salary increases and benefits in the workplace. And in the executive director role, that becomes an even weirder conversation because you are developing a budget with your board and you have to actually, but, you know, you have to really self-advocate. Um, and we were talking about the methodology to use, making sure that your salary is commensurate with other similar size, similar work organizations and not being afraid to ask for what you deserve. Um, you know, there's this idea. It's funny because a while ago there was a, some meme on Facebook where they were talking about how much the executive director of some enormous nonprofit, like $300 million a year nonprofit, how much they got paid. And, you know, it was a, it was a seven figure salary. And people were like, that's ridiculous. And I, and I kind of sat back and was like, wow, the executive director role is enormous. And my, you know, my organization is small. We have just about a $2 million budget. I said, when you think about that person's salary in the context of their budget, the context of the complexity of their work, like that's what you'd have to pay to get somebody in a Fortune 500 company to run it. And the nonprofit sector needs the same kind of expertise. And so, you know, while being a good steward of your organization's finances, also remembering to take care of yourself and that um, an executive director who is under who is underpaid and under-resourced and running themselves ragged um, is not doing their organization or the world a favor, right? Is that, that fuel really starts at home. Um, so I think those are three really key things for, um, for women in leadership. Mm-hmm. What type of advice do you give to the young woman who looks at you and your bio, your leadership story, and wants to follow your path, who's in a sixth grade classroom right now, um, thinking about her future and knows that she wants to have impact? I, yeah, so I have a lot of conversations with folks who are interested in policy and advocacy. And for classroom teachers who want to stay in education policy, my first piece of advice is stay in the classroom longer. Um, there's nothing, for me at least, when I'm thinking about the value of people's experience, I think that the one thing that policy in particular lacks and some executive leadership lacks is, is really that on-the-ground experience. Um, that makes your perspective so much more valuable later. Uh, the second is to look for strategic leadership roles, like when you're in the classroom. So whether that's being a grade level chair or doing a special project for a principal or working um, with an organization um, like DEC in DC, which is the um, Edu- Education Coalition for Change, um, that like small tries at leadership where you can show success and sort of hone your skills um, is really important. And honestly, like this sounds like, the most shameless plug, but I think that the trainings that I've done with Lee have been incredibly valuable, both um, the networking and actually learning how to network and, and tell my story like quickly and in a way that's engaging, but also, um, but also sort of the more technical aspects of policy advocacy work um, have been incredibly helpful. Um, so that, that way when opportunities uh, present themselves, if you've been doing a great job at what your core work is, taking small passes at leadership, then you're ready to step in and people like automatically recognize you as someone who already brings a lot of value to whatever role you're in. Mm-hmm. Who, um, who has been your favorite mentor? 
I mean, I've got it. Susan Scheffler from Kip DC is like the baddest of the bad. She is, um, mm. I worked directly for her for, you know, eight out of my 10 years at Kip DC. And, um, I think that I have learned so much. Uh, she's really tough, but she's also, um, like the most emotionally intelligent person that I've ever met. And so a lot of times, um, like learning how she balances both her skill and her instincts and her role has been transformational for me as I try to figure out what kind of leader I am at this level. Um, and she's someone who you know, has always made herself available to me when I have a tough problem. So I, you know, it, she was, she was great. And I was really lucky to have worked for her for so long and learned so much from her. Mm-hmm. And what has been your favorite and or most teaching failure? Oh God. It's not too embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think really like having my entire team quit after a year of working for me um, was, was it's not, it was not my favorite. It was the most painful and really made me feel like a horrible person. Um, but in terms of like getting the most value out of something, uh, I just think that learning that you're not getting the best from people when you're driving them into the ground that you're getting your best from people and when you're like inspiring them to be their best and ensuring that work is a place they come to every day to be their best self. Um, I think that's really the most important thing I've learned about leadership. What changed about you? If we, if, if we were to fl- a fly on the wall, uh, right as your team quit after year one and today in terms of how you manage, how you lead, what, what you do, what would we, what would we see that's so different? Well, this is going to make me sound like a terrible person. So I just want to be clear that I just have a bit, but I'm, again, I'm all about the work. And so I think um, now with my team, I know about their lives. I know when their birthdays are. I know when their kids' birthdays are. I know what they like to do in their spare time. I ask about their weekends. There's like, I think, a good balance of work and play in my office. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that I'm not... I'm not one of those bosses who's like counting down to the minute, the second you walk in, the second you walk out. Um, I think the flip side of that is that I know that having the right people on the bus is like literally the most important thing. Um, I'm not free to do my job if I'm having to overly involve myself with the work of my staff. And so um, recognizing great talent um, and getting an eye for who, like who's the workhorse and who's the show horse. And I would a million times rather have, someone with a little less experience who's willing to put in the time and the work than somebody who has the right resume and then is there to, you know, look cute and look like they're doing a job. Um, but I think really it's, it's just the other piece is that, uh, you know, I think now I'm a lot less overly formal with my, with my staff. And part of that is I'm officially grown up now at this age. And when I managed my first team, I was in my early twenties. And so I didn't feel grown up. And so I think I overcompensated, but now like I'm, com- you know, I'm comfortable joking around with them, but also know, that they have enough respect for me that when I got to roll it back, we got to roll it back, we just get work done. Like we're in a good place and they don't think that the joke has sort of undermined my leadership. Mm-hmm. How do you, um, when you're building a team or when you were rebuilding your team, I'm curious about how did you make choices about talent and what did you put first? I, I hear you, I, I hear you really clearly describing your kind of additional focus on getting to know people and building relationships. But, but what did you, what were you looking for when you were, when you were building that team that you, that would make you think that it would work, that they would work together? Yeah. So I think, I think really when, um, and 
I typically did a ton of behavioral interviewing. When I listen to people narrate the story of their work life, I'm looking for people who really believe the buck stops with them and, and are committed to excellence. That like almost anything else for me is, is coachable or teachable, except for the attitude that everything went wrong because of things out of their control. So this really strong internal locus of control combined with coachability, I think is like the, the happy duality of folks that I, I personally can work with. I also just in general, um, like I'm a pretty, uh, I'm a pretty even keeled person, but I also need, but I tend to have, and people, advocates do this frequently, right? I have my moments of outrage that while I'm legitimately outraged, I think some of that is a little bit fake. Like I'm, when I'm yelling, I'm not yelling at people. I'm yelling about, I don't know, about some policy that made me crazy. And so folks who, uh, folks who like recognize that and aren't, and aren't afraid of me, I think, you know, it took my team a little, my team, actually my predecessor was very similar to me, a fierce advocate, um, and, and was sometimes prone to outbursts about some insane thing that the DC government did that made him angry. And so my team was really well primed for that. But I think with my previous team, it kept making sure that people understood that like, I I'm passionate and I get outraged at least three times a day. Um, and it's not directed at them. And I never, I never yell at, you know, my, at my team, but that are sort of able to ride out, um, ride out the ebbs and flows of my passion in a way that doesn't make them crazy. Um, and that's just knowing myself, right? Like I'm, I am, I am emotive. And, and so, and it doesn't mean that everyone on my team has to be emotive. It means they just have to not be uncomfortable with like my own personal leadership style. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I'm curious about what is the most important thing you do to take care of yourself? So interesting you ask because I happen to be a dancer. Um, so, <laughs> Um, I picked up, I started to salsa dance right when I joined Teach for America. And at the time it was an outlet to do something other than talk to, think about, and look at children. Um, over time, the dance company that I was affiliated with, I had the opportunity to like travel the world and dance professionally and in my quote unquote spare time. Um, and so many years later, I continue to use dance as an outlet. Um, I'm a pretty, uh, Neurotic is a strong word, but I'm somebody who tends to think about problems until they're solved. And when you are doing partner dance like salsa, which is what I do, um, and you're a follower, you actually have to clear your mind of everything except that particular moment um, and really be attentive to your partner and to the dance and to the music. And so for me, that's sort of like my Zen moment where I don't have to think about work and I don't have to think about those stresses and I'm able just to sort of like let go. And I found that to be incredibly important. So even in my most busy week, um, I am dancing a couple of times a week. Um, even if it's only that I get out from like 8.30 to 9.30 at night, um, that's something that's incredibly important to me for staying sane. Absolutely. That so resonates with me and I've described it the same way. I'm a very active in the, the DC Cuban salsa community and um, I describe it exactly that. If if nothing else will clear your mind or or give your your you peace, it will be trying to orient yourself with another human being while interpreting some really complex music. It's a beautiful thing. Yes, absolutely. Walk um walk us through what your days look like from about the time you wake up in the morning till about ten thirty in the morning. What's first and so, and 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 what follows? Sure. So, um, a huge part of my morning. So I am the, you know, as a former teacher who is now married to a teacher, um, and, and my husband's actually a career changer. So a huge part of my morning is actually setting us both up for success because I understand, um, the unique needs of, uh, living with somebody who is completely dedicated to children all day. 
Mm -hmm. So I get up about five o'clock in the morning and before anybody else in my house wakes up, I spend a little bit of time um, checking any emails that came in the night before because I try not to check after a certain time at night, usually about nine o'clock. Um, and like reviewing my schedule for the day to make sure that I'm well prepared for everything that I have to do. Um, I make breakfast for my husband and myself and we spend a half hour in the morning eating together, um, which with our schedules is one of the few periods of time that we get to spend uninterrupted. So that's really important. Um, send him off to work. I generally spend about another, at this point, he leaves at like 6.45. I usually spend about till 7.45, like doing some pre-work before I get into the office. I'm a zero inbox person. So keeping my, like keeping myself clear, um, and not letting that build up is really important to my sanity. Um, when I get ready for work, I head into my office and then as an, as an ED, I would say 60% of my time is spent meeting with people for various purposes and the other 40% trying to be strategic and, you know, sort of leverage my time towards what's not urgent, but important. Um, and so depending on the day, I either have a one-on-one with one of my, the people that I supervise directly or I may be meeting with one of our organizational partners. Um, and then, and really, I think the most important part of my days don't happen at the beginning. Um, I, through my very first job, which was for a restaurant, um, they had a very strict time management system that all their management had to adhere to called 52120. And what that means is that every year you set aside five hours to plan your entire year. And that's like your vacation and your doctor's appointments and like everything big. Um, two hours a month to plan your month one hour a week to plan your week, and then 20 minutes every day planning the subsequent day. Um, And that habit that I learned when I was, I think, 16 years old has stuck with me. And so at the end of the day, before I leave, like I always spend 20 minutes making sure that I have both um, left myself work time and that I'm prepared for everything I have the next day. And then on Fridays, I spend the one hour preparing for the subsequent week. Um, and I think that those habits are really um, what keep me effective because otherwise I would just be flying by the seat of my pants all the time. Mm-hmm. And what would you advise your 23-year-old self? I, I think number one, like no matter how, no matter how humble you think you are right now, it is not humble enough mm-hmm. um, that, that a lot of, it's, it's amazing to me, and even now uh, managing younger staff and having friends who manage much younger staff, that um, a lot, that work is a place where we come to be our best selves, but we also have to leave some of like the interpersonal expectations behind, learning how to have the what happened conversation, not that you're a bad person conversation, um, because cause at that point in my life, I can remember everything that happened at work felt incredibly personal, when in hindsight, I don't think any of those things were personal. I think they were all um all other things. Um, I also think just being, uh, being a little bit less afraid of risk. Um, I, when I talk to young women, I tell them all the time when, when I applied to teach for America, I actually applied and was accepted and then deferred because at the time I had um, a boyfriend who told me that if I went to Houston to teach, he would break up with me. And so I deferred for a year to see, um, what was happening. And quite honestly, like he broke up with me anywhere. And I ended up being placed in DC my second year. And while I don't have any regrets, um, I often do wonder how my life would be different if I'd done my placement in Houston. And, um, and really, at this point in my life, when I'm choosing between a comfortable choice and a risky choice, I almost always choose the, ris- the riskier choice um, because it's usually the more rewarding one. And I think just encouraging myself or other young people to, um, within reason, to really do what's most uncomfortable because at the end of the day, like, that's what's going to be most rewarding. Mm, that's fantastic advice. Irene, I've uh, 
thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoy, uh, appreciate you joining the podcast today. Oh, my pleasure. We really hope that we can talk with you another time and, uh, and get even more of your, of the wisdom that you've built over the years of, of leadership. Thank you for sharing so much. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. You too. Like this interview, follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also visit www.educationalequity.org slash leaders table for more resources to grow your impact. Tweet us your questions for future interviews at Lee underscore national. Thanks so much. Your host at the leaders table is Jason Urenz. I am your producer, Molly Stevens. And thanks to John Stevens for our music and editing. 